0: And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So over the past few weeks, um, on the advice of an old college buddy, I've been listening to a podcast by a theologian and historian who's made it his goal to help Christians understand their Old Testament a bit better. And largely the way he's doing that is by um, delving into some recent advances in the languages of the time and you know, new discoveries with that, uh, various anthropological and, and archaeological um, advances that have come. Um, and by the way, um, we have never once found anything in, uh, in archaeology in that area that has made the Bible story look weaker. It's actually always been the opposite. Um, most of the time, almost every time, I can't think of an exception to this, they find something new and it debunks um, some of the assumptions that had come about the Bible's lack of trustworthiness. In other words, it proves some of the trustworthiness of the Old Testament and the New Testament also. But at any rate, back to this fellow. Uh, One of the things that he rightly emphasizes on a consistent basis is the necessity to see the Old Testament from the perspective of the original audience. That is, we ought to ask ourselves when we're reading the Old Testament, what does this text actually say in its own context as understood by those to whom those various Old Testament books were written? Now, sometimes this approach would seem to run afoul of the New Testament's own approach to the Old Testament, which is definitively Christocentric. That is, um, it. the way the New Testament treats the Old Testament text is always through that lens of the Messiah. Didn't Jesus, after all, tell the Pharisees that they didn't know him because they didn't know the law and the prophets? Didn't Jesus encounter those two disciples on the road to Emmaus where he explains how the Old Testament was all about him as we read in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he expounded unto them in all scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, the answer to this is, of course, that we ought not to create false dichotomies. This does not have to be an either-or issue. Rather, we are to understand the scripture as having layers of meaning or several different senses, as the rabbis, the church fathers, and even of the authors of the New Testament itself show us. So we should read the Old Testament in its historical and grammatical context. But we should also read it through the lens of messianic fulfillment. That means y'all got to read the New Testament tw- or the Old Testament twice. <laughs> and sometimes we don't like to read it even once. So you've got more homework now. As, the fr- as a first century rabbi with the delightful name of Ben Bagbag says of scripture, Turn it and turn it, for everything is in it. Reflect on it and grow old and gray with it. Don't turn from it, for nothing is better than it. Or as St. Augustine famously said, In the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the old is revealed. And indeed, sometimes we can get seemingly contradictory pictures of the Messiah from the Old Testament. Pictures that only make sense in light of what we read in the New Testament. Take for example Zechariah nine nine, which was quoted in our procession of the Palms Liturgy today. Zechariah nine nine, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon the coal, the colt, the foal of an ass. This passage is well known to most Christians because of that triumphal entry uh, text that we commemorate every Palm Sunday, and in our prayer book, also at the beginning of Advent. But when we turn to Daniel 7.13, we see the Messiah coming in a different way. Daniel 7.13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. And came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now in the Talmud, which is Judaism's official kind of traditional supplementary text to the scriptures, representing the rabbinic views from around the time of Jesus until the early Middle Ages, we find an attempt to reconcile these two passages based on whether or not the people of Israel are worthy of the Messiah's coming. So this is what we read there. Rabbi Joshua set in opposition two verses. It is written, And behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. While elsewhere it is written, Behold, thy king comes unto you lowly and riding on a donkey. And then Rabbi Joshua's solution. If they are meritorious, he will come with the clouds of heaven. If they are not meritorious, then he will come lowly and riding upon a donkey. Well, from the New Testament, we can see a better way of reconciling these two passages. It's not about whether or not the people are worthy, but rather it's about two comings of the Messiah. The first time he would come with humility, symbolized by riding on the donkey into Jerusalem. But when he returns, he'll come riding on the clouds, just like how he ascended into heaven on the clouds after his resurrection. Now, we don't typically think of the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday as being about the Lord's humility. After all, weren't the people praising him? Weren't they laying their coats down, waving palms, singing Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord? Yet the scriptures do use Zechariah's prophecy to illustrate that his entry was a demonstration of the Lord's humility. Though the procession of the palms and the recitation of the triumphal entry is a very old tradition for the Sunday before Easter, we find an even older tradition preserved in the prayer book that is reading and focusing on the Lord's humiliation through the passion narratives, as we saw in our long gospel today. By the way, if you're coming at any of the midweek communion or anti-communion services, we'll be reading more of those passion narratives. Uh, These are long gospel readings. Get used to it. (laughs) If Jesus is riding into Jerusalem humbly, in Matthew 21, we find that he's being bound, beaten, mocked, humiliated, tortured, and slain in our gospel passage from Matthew 27. Notice how our collect sums up this theme of the day. We prayed, Almighty and everlasting God, who, of thy tender love towards mankind, has set thy Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to take upon him our flesh and to suffer death upon the cross, that all mankind should follow the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may both follow the example of his patience and also be made partakers of his resurrection through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Did you notice those two factors cited in our collect as examples of his great humility? First, he took upon him our flesh. Second, he suffered death upon the cross. Our epistle epistle passage explains this in one of the earliest Christian hymns. So please turn your Bibles to Philippians 2, verse 5. Philippians 2, 5. You can find this on page 134 in your prayer book, or I believe on page 921 in your pew Bible. Philippians 2, verse 5. And again, most scholars do see this as an early, early Christian hymn. person of the blessed trinity he set aside his glory to become one of us the immortal one took on mortality the creator put on created flesh the lord of the universe became an obedient servant the holy one was executed like a common criminal and this had been the plan from the very beginning the son willingly and eagerly took on this rescue mission, a plan that would require his humiliation and death, all because of his love and the Father's love for fallen, sinful humanity. As the prophet Isaiah said, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The good shepherd laid down his life for the wayward sheep becoming the one true spotless Paschal Lamb sacrificed for us. And this was not cosmic child abuse by the Father. This was a demonstration of God's love with all three persons of the Trinity playing a part. Christ humbles himself willingly. He had the power to end his suffering at any time. Remember at the beginning of Lent, when we we read about how Satan was trying to talk our Lord into taking the easy way out. Remember also the mocking words of the chief priests, scribes, and elders from our gospel passage. He saved others. He cannot save himself. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. Just like the devil... The Jewish leaders were tempting Jesus to end his suffering in a display of power. But our Lord does not take the easy way out. Our Lord remains on the cross. He suffers and dies, not because he was forced to, but because he knew that was the proper and indeed the only way to rescue us, the only way to redeem creation. But that death and humiliation, they don't last forever. Verse 9 in our epistle, Philippians 2.9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So we see that Jesus didn't need to become Lord. He has always been Lord. He didn't need to aspire to the glory of the Godhead. That glory was his from the beginning, from all eternity. By virtue of that lordship, every knee would have bowed anyway if he would have, uh, if he would have shown his full glory and stepped down off the cross. But God wanted us to bow from love rather than from coercion. God wanted to redeem us rather than to condemn us. Parents, teachers, y'all can understand this, right? It's much better to uh, have the children obey because of love than out of coercion. We can coerce them to do what we want, right? (laughs) I mean, they don't have the power to do anything, really. They don't even have, you know, we can take their stuff away. We can send them to bed. We can do all those sorts of things. But it's much better for them to listen and obey of their own volition. I'd much rather my daughter's respect come with love rather than with fear. Even when they're saying, Daddy's bald. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) That said, Jesus' lordship is glorious and powerful. And that means that it will humble us, and sometimes it will even frighten us. I'm reminded of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, That great lion who symbolizes Christ in those stories, he's described as not being safe. They ask if he's safe. and They're like, no, he's not safe. He's a lion. But he is always good. And that's important as we head into Holy Week. We don't look at Jesus' humiliation the same way that the scribes and the priests did. We don't look at him like the soldiers did or even like the common people did. He's not to be pitied. He's certainly not to be mocked rather we echo the words of the centurion and his companions who as our text says feared greatly saying truly this was the son of god now just two verses prior to our epistle passage st paul writes this so this is philippians 2 verses 2 and 3 fulfill ye my joy that ye be that ye be like minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not on every man his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And then we have our passage, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So because we've been crucified with Christ, we participate in his death through faith and through the sacraments. Because we've done this, we can also exercise the Lord's humility. If he didn't consider equality with God as robbery, um, as our King James says, or something to be grasped as the ESV renders it, something to jealously cling to, then we can also become humble before each other rather than insisting on our own supposed rights. We don't have to look out for number one. It's not every man for himself in the kingdom of God. No, all of us, we all are redeemed slaves who've been rescued from sin and adopted into Christ's family. None of us deserves to be here. We're all only here by God's grace. That's also to remember as we begin Holy Week. Holy Week is not just about remembering Christ's death and passion. It is about that, but it's not just about that. It's also about changing us through his death and passion. It's about humbling ourselves as we consider his humility. It's about dying to self as we consider his death. And it's about looking forward to our own resurrection and glorification as we consider his resurrection and glory knowing that Easter is a promise that we will be with him one day in his fulfilled kingdom. The first time he came humble on a donkey, and he was met by pilgrims and and their praises. The next time he's going to come on the clouds, again met by pilgrims who say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And we say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.